We're going to be in Acts 17, um, verses 16 through 34. And I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to anything in the news, but there's this thing called the J.D. Webb Telescope. And it's been sending back pictures to us. It's about a million miles away from Earth right now, sending us pictures. And these pictures are absolutely breathtaking. I mean, phenomenal, amazing. I mean, go look it up if you get a chance. Totally worth your time diving in and seeing these pictures. Um, And the goal of the J.D. Webb Telescope is to seek the birth of our universe, to seek the beginning of our existence. So it's taking pictures of galaxies we've never seen before, some of the earliest formed and made galaxies. And it got me wondering as I was looking at these pictures and looking um, through them that mankind has always been on a desperate search, desperate search, right? A desperate search to know where we come from, a desperate search to know the truth, a desperate search to figure out what to trust and what to believe. And without necessarily saying it, this is what the people of the J.D. Webb Telescope Research Program are saying as well. We're looking for God. We're looking for the creator. We're looking to see if he exists, to see where it all started, to know where we come from. Will we find him? Will we? Can we know this creator? So Paul, he's in Athens, all right? This is the intellectual hub of the known world. This is like the little corridor in North Carolina where you got like Wake Forest, UNC, you got, uh, you know, NC State. You got this, this corridor of just knowledge. You have these philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates who have all left their mark on Athens. And it was a hub for philosophy and education. I mean, these people are brilliant. These people are smart. And what are these philosophers searching for? They're searching to find God. Paul's trying to reveal to them that in their search that they can actually know God. They can know him through creation. They can know him through his providence. And then lastly, they can know him through Jesus, his son. So he preaches to them a gospel, a gospel that says, come to Jesus, a gospel that says that, hey, you might be worshiping idols, but why don't you come and worship God? He doesn't use Christianese language, but he uses the poets of that time. He uses the literature of that time to reveal to them that God is written at the core of their being, at the core of their heart, at the core of their art, at the core of their architecture, at the core of their philosophies. And so the questions that I want to ask you is what are you searching for? What are you putting your trust in? Do you really want to know God? And so let's find out. Paul's at the Harvard, at the Princeton of the first century known world. And these are the words that he says. So will you stand with me and read? Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked, a fire was put within him, as he saw that the city was smothered, full of idols. So we reason in the synagogue with Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And they said to him, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching this idea of Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing 
except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore do you worship that's unknown? This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The James Webb telescope. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word spoken to you. The most important thing said tonight, will you have a seat? Where do you put your trust? Do you put your trust in idols or do you put your trust in God? The first point is trust in idols. The Athenians, they were involved in an egregious amount of idolatry. Paul is like, this place is smothered, is full of idols. These Athenians, they've created, crafted, made statues out of precious metals and stones. They created temples. They worshiped their intellect. They worshiped their culture. They worshiped their art. They were curious. They were constantly searching for answers asking questions. They longed for new philosophies and teachings. And so in Paul's sermon, he actually affirms this. He's like, this is not necessarily a bad thing, that you hunger for answers, that you hunger for truth and knowledge, that you have a commitment to worship, but you're missing the mark. You're off target. You see, Paul right now is like a doctor. He spotted a tumor, and he's done the CAT scan, and he's read the results and it's cancerous. It's going to kill you. So he, before all of these brilliant minds, stands before them at the center of education, tells them that they're worshiping idols, that they are involved with a cancerous tumor that's going to eat away their life and kill them. What kind of doctor finds cancer? He says, don't worry about it. What kind of doctor finds cancer and says, we don't need to treat this? It is hard to hear the truth, that there is something wrong, that there is something misplaced, that our hearts, desires are oftentimes deceitful, and it tells, and we need someone to tell us. We need someone to say, there's something wrong here. And Paul stands and says, there's something wrong. 
but there's a way to heal, and there's a way to have eternal life. Often in the Old Testament, idolatry is compared to adultery. It's compared to prostitution. You see that in Hosea. It's like chasing lovers that won't ever satisfy you. So what are you chasing that is like your feel-good fix? That's the quick band-aid to a festering infection. That is temporary numbness so that you don't have to feel the pain. That's just the next hit, the next high to get through the day. The Athenians are like adulterers, chasing after the next thing, never satisfied, only looking for more and more, and always finding that whatever they have is lacking. So they seek for something else, right? They chase for something else that will, not, that will carry them and hold them. There's something that is inside of them that burns for this fulfillment and satisfaction. And Paul says, I have the answer. I know the way. And he makes it clear what that way is. It's the one true and eternal God. So he looks around, sees these idols. He noticed this thing called an unknown God, an altar. This is a fascinating story. I think it's amazing. Athens was struck with a plague, all right? And they were struck with this horrible plague, and they were sacrificing to their idols over and over again, but this plague remained. So out of desperation, they released lambs upon the city. And the people went out and slaughtered the lambs wherever they found them. And if a lamb was near an idol, they would slaughter it, and they would give glory to that idol. But if a lamb was not near anything like an idol or a statue or a temple, they would slaughter it, and then they would build an altar to an unknown god. And sure enough the plague subsided. Paul is saying, your hearts are right to be looking for this unknown God. You have misplaced your affection, though. You've clearly built an altar saying that there may be this other God that we don't know about that can actually relieve us from a plague. But he's hidden from me. He's unknown. And Paul says, I know him. Do you want to know him too? Sometimes, as Americans, Westerners, we can check out with this idolatry language, right? We can think that idol worship is just a thing of the past, but it is so present in America. I would say that our country is smothered in it. It's probably even greater than what the Athenians have. We may not sacrifice lambs or animals, but we do sacrifice ourselves, our time, energy, our efforts? What is it that consumes you? What is it that you give your most attention to? Why don't you pull up your screen time? iPhones have this incredible ability. You can pull up your screen time and your settings, and you can see that your apps, that mine's ESPN. Um, and maybe if you look at that, you'll see your idol. Maybe pull up your bank account statements and figure out where your money goes. Mine goes to food. We, I love good food. Los Maguayas down there, that Mexican restaurant. Free chips and queso. It's delicious. Why don't you ask your spouse or your kids? Maybe you'll see your idol. I am hooked on idols. So are you. I trust in them daily to get me through. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, there is an allegorical story about a mother 
Her name is Pam, and she goes to heaven. She's passed away on earth. She goes to heaven, and all she wants to do is see her little boy. In her earthly life, she left, when, his, when her little boy passed away, she left his room the same. She greets him every day and had been longing to finally see him face to face. But the first person that she meets on the outer edges of heaven is a guide. And this is disappointing to her. So she explains to him that all that she wants to see is her son. That doesn't seem like a bad thing, right? It doesn't seem so bad to want to see your child who's long gone. The guide explains to her, though, that she will see her boy in due time, but first she needs to see someone else. And this is where we're going to pick up the conversation in the novel. She responds saying to the guide, oh, you mean religion and all that sort of stuff. Okay, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. The sooner I begin, the sooner I get to see my boy. And the guide responds, Pam, you're treating God as a means to your son. But the whole idea of heaven is wanting God for his own sake. She then said, if God loved me, he, wouldn't let, he would let me see my little boy. If he loved me, why did he take him away? Give me my boy, don't you hear? I don't care about the rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps a mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has the right to come between me and my son not even God. Tell him that to his face, will you? I want my boy, and I mean to have him. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine forever and ever. What is her idol? Where does her heart belong? What does she worship? It is not God. Listen, another way for us as churchgoers, I mean, we can facade our idolatry often, but it's a way that we can figure out a little bit of our idolatry is to think about heaven, actually, to look forward to that day where we go to heaven and to think, what are we really looking forward to? Is it truly Jesus? Or are we just hoping that we just don't end up in hell? Are we just looking forward to seeing relatives who have long gone, grandparents, parents, children, friends, I cannot tell you how much art I see where it's painted this picture of a person entering heaven and the people that they're hugging is a child or a grandparent or a parent, and then there's Jesus all the way off in the distance just smiling. I'm sure that might be part of heaven, getting to hug friends, family members who are long gone. But when you look at these pictures, it feels like Jesus, he could just be out of the picture. It wouldn't even matter. Would you care? If Jesus wasn't in heaven, would you care if all you really want is all your loved ones were together and you weren't in hell? Would that just be enough for you? If this is the case, what's your idol? What do you long for? What do you trust in? Whatever it is, it's adultery. It's cheating. You have forgotten your first love. We, be, we believe in idols, we follow them because there's this lie. The lie is that this life is all we got, right? We believe the lie that God is far away. We believe the lie that we can't know God. We believe the lie that he does not love us or care about us. And because of these lies, he remains unknown to us. 
And we, like the Athenians, with our man-made idols, we use them to keep us temporarily satisfied. We add God to our list of other idols like sports, ESPN, our families, our children. Every now and then we'll give him a Sunday, right? We'll come and show up. And we'll acknowledge that there's a God, he's, but he's part of this long list of other things that I give myself away to. Where are you putting your trust? Do you really believe in God, and do you really trust him with your life? Or is he just a means to your own end? As Christians, we so often make God so very small. We make him out to be in a box that we can control. We think we have him figured out. We study him. We systematize him. We put him in books and theology. And we just use it for our own gain. We act like we have all the answers. We tap into God whenever we need him, but that's it. We tap into God when there's a life emergency. He is a great insurance plan if things are not going well. For us, God is just a piece in the puzzle of our life. He's just a cog in the machine of our existence. There's a very popular movement right now called an ex-Christian movement. It's called deconstructionism. I don't know if you've heard of it or seen it, but it's happening all over the United States. I'm seeing it with young people, and they're deconstructing their faith, and they're posting it on YouTube, on Instagram, and they're making these statements. And there's this popular podcast that's um, been out for a long time by two guys. They were part of a campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, and they were outspoken Christians until recently when they hosted a podcast about their ex-Christian movement of deconstructing their faith, and I listened to it. And each one of them said, as they deconstructed their faith, they said these things. They said this, Christianity, the church, wasn't working for me anymore. It wasn't working for my family, and so we decided to try something else. You see, God to them was just a cog in the machine of their life. When that cog stopped working, what do you do with a broken part in your car? You replace it with something else. I would argue that he truly, they truly never trusted God with their lives. They didn't trust the God of the universe. They didn't trust the God who swallowed death. They didn't trust the God who is, who was, and is to come, but instead trusted in a pseudo-God-like figment of their imagination that fit into their little box of their life that made them feel good when they felt bad. They made him to something that worked for them. And when it stopped working, they quit and replaced him. Idols bring quick satisfaction. That's one thing they sure do. They bring cheap thrills. They bring hollow happiness. Why? Because we control them. Because they depend on us. They're defined by us. And because they don't judge us. These idols that we worship fall empty because we are looking for something so much more. Something so much more than likes on social media. Something so much more than wealth, a pay raise. Something so much more than children, marriages. Uh, something so much more than a great career. We're searching for the source of the universe, the James Webb Telescope. The reason why we worship idols is we struggle to trust in God. 
It's because we don't know God. It's because we so quickly forget about him. This is called sin. It happened in the garden right at the beginning with Adam and Eve. They didn't trust that what God had said to them was worthy to obey because they didn't think that God was actually taking care of them. So they did what they wanted. Paul is calling the Athenians to repent, to trust in God so that they can know this unknown God. The second point is trust in God. In verses 24 through 31, Paul makes the case that the Athenians, what they're worshiping is man-made. It's cheap. Athenians worship gods and idols made by human hands from human imaginations and constructed from earthly elements like stone, gold, and silver that live in man-made temples that require human help and sacrifice and that all will eventually die and decay. Even today, so much of what they made and created is gone. Some idols, right? Some gods. Paul's saying that this is complete garbage in comparison to the one true God. In contrast, Paul describes God in those verses 24 through 31. If you're looking there, he describes God as the creator of the universe. Look, don't you see? The sustainer of life. He gives us breath, everything. The ruler of nations. We are his offspring, he's our father. He is the killer of death, and he is also the ultimate judge. Paul is saying you long to worship, you crave it. So why are you settling for cheap, man-made stuff? Why not have the source of all of that? Why not have something internal? Why not worship the creator of the created, the creator of yourself? Why not trust him, and why not go to him and know him? There's this thing called the metaverse. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, there's also these things called NFTs. It's digital. It's a digital world that's being created and formed, and it's made by brilliant human beings, absolute geniuses. And it's really cool. And on December 20, in December 2021, there was a piece of property. Do you know how much sold, how much is sold in the metaverse? This digital piece of property? $4.3 million. This digital piece of land that is graphically created by a human being, a computer program that is saved on a server. Someone spent $4.3 million on it. Why spend $4.3 million on something digital when you can spend $4.3 million on something real, tangible, better? The metaverse is just a copy of this place. We're just pulling it in. Why would you settle for idols when you can have God, when you can have Jesus? Tom Brady has won many Super Bowls. And after winning three, he said, is this all that life is about? Idols are so fleeting. And the reason why is because they die. They get old, they break, they don't last. They are really not worth your time. They are not worth your energy. They're not worth your money and your effort because they're man-made. The world knows we love to worship, so they're going to keep selling it to us. They know we're always looking for more, so they're going to keep selling us. So what is worth your time? What's worth your energy and what's worth your effort? You are meant for something eternal, something that never runs empty, 
Jesus says, come to me, all who are thirsty, and you'll never be thirsty again. You long for something that never gets old, something that never dies. You long for God. You may not realize this, but every day you depend on him. You're defined by him. You are controlled by him. And he's not a piece of the puzzle of your story. He's not a cog in the machine of your existence. The reality is that you are a piece in the puzzle of his glory. That you are a cog in the machine of his story. What say did you have in being born? How much control do you have? What say did you have in your genetics? I'm pretty short. I wish I was taller. What say did you have in your lot in life? Nothing. None. Why? You're not the author. You're not the creator. The Athenians are following along. They're like, this kind of makes sense. Paul is communicating well. They, he's using our poets. He's using our unknown God altar. He's making connections. He's building this bridge to get them to Jesus. And they're following along. They're with him. Why would they worship man-made things if they die and decay and fall apart when they can worship the eternal creator? This is, this is making sense to their logic. But here is where Paul loses some of them. It's in this moment towards the end, verses 30 through 32, you notice this point. There's this point that you have to cross in Christianity in order to believe in it, in order to trust God. We see that Paul says, repent. He says, change your mind, turn from idols, stop ignoring God. You can know him, and you can know him through Jesus, the appointed one, and he will judge you, and you can have faith in all this because of the resurrection. Jesus dies and is resurrected. Jesus is eternal. Following him will never be old. Following him will never be boring, will never be meaningless. It will be the greatest adventure of your life. When Paul talked of Jesus' resurrection, there were three responses. The first was mocking. Some, when they got to the point of resurrection, they scoffed, mocked him. This is the result of pride and arrogance. It's like when a doctor says that you have a cancerous tumor, and I know the way to fix it, and you're like, I don't want treatment. I don't care about it. I don't think it's cancerous. These mockers refuse to trust in God. They refuse to know him and believe him. They couldn't fathom the idea of resurrection. They seemed to be willing to believe that there was a God who created. They followed along. He created all things from nothing, but they were not willing to believe that God could take who created everything from nothing, could take a dead man and bring him to life. This is where they thought Paul was quote-unquote dumb and could not, they could not cross over. But you have to understand something. If you're a Christian, this is the linchpin of your faith. The linchpin of your faith. You have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is not alive, if he was not raised from the dead, this is completely meaningless. We are fools He's just simply a good guy. And he's no different than you and I. He's not our king. Your sins are still on you. You can't get rid of them. And death wins. And there's no hope. 
So let's just go chase after whatever we can get our hands on, the quick fixes, because it's all we got. It's all we'll ever have. Tolkien, in The Lord of the Rings, really captures this with the character Gollum. He becomes obsessed with the ring, becomes his precious. Gollum ends up dying with the ring in the fires of Mordor. It was his worship. It was idolatry. He becomes consumed with it, and it consumes him. But listen, if you worship Jesus, he did die, but he's also resurrected. You become what you worship. Gollum worshiped a ring, a material object that decays and dies, and so Gollum decayed and died. But we worship Jesus, who does die but it's also resurrected. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. If the resurrection has happened, it changes everything. There's a second response to the resurrection. We see this in verse 32. It says that there was those who wanted to hear more. And I'm aware that there might be people right here in this room. They're like, I am willing, I'm kind of interested. This makes sense. I want to hear more. They're beginning to see that Jesus changes the narrative. They're beginning to see that he fills the gaps for them in their life. But they're not quite ready to make the jump across the bridge. If this is you today, if you are not quite ready, but you're open, you're listening, you're hearing, please talk with us, with me, with Seth, with Adam, with Michael. We would love to talk with you. There's an amazing moment we're living in right now. The judgment of God has not yet come in fullness. And Jesus is graciously inviting all of us to come home. But there is no guarantee that that will happen tomorrow. So I urge you, if this is you, be urgent. Be urgent in this search. Grab the Bible and read it all in the next week. Come speak with us. Talk with us. He's coming soon. And then there's this third response. If you look at the verse 34, it says, Some men joined him, Paul, and believed, which is the Greek word is epistuson, which is to entrust with your life, to trust in God. It's the response of those who want to know God. At Camp Kalakwa, at middle school camp, the other week, the gospel was presented one night. We sat down in church huddles. We talked with the kids, asked them questions. I said, why don't you guys grab your Bibles, go out, sit down with your Bibles and journals and talk with God. And then there's this one kid that was hanging back and, and being slow to leave. And I said, hey, man, what's going on? And he looked at me and said, Mikey, I want to know Jesus. I want to know God. I want to trust him with my life. 11-year-old. Wanting to trust Jesus. If you are here today and you're tired of your fraudulent idols, the never-ending meaningless, the never-ending feeling of not having enough, the exhaustion of constantly wanting more, the feeling of worthlessness that comes with that, the feeling of hopelessness, and you feel like, is this really it? And you actually want to know God? And you want something to satisfy you, to fulfill you? If that makes sense, that life is not about you, but it's actually about God, 
if that makes sense that we should trust the creator of the created things, if you feel a pricking of your heart right now, will you trust your life to Jesus? Will you make your life about him? Will you make him the desire of your heart? Will you repent? Change your mind? Make Jesus your king and long for heaven where he is, where you will meet him. In John 8, there's a woman caught in adultery. She's brought outside to be stoned in public. And Jesus says when he sees her and they bring him to her, he says, he who's without sin can cast the first stone. And so they began to leave one by one. And all that was left was Jesus and this adulterer, this sinner, this idolater. And I imagine, this isn't in the text, but I imagine that Jesus, as he is sitting there, he has a stone in his hand. And she's wondering, will he cast the stone? He is the one without any sin. He's the one that remains. What is going to happen? And this is what Jesus says to her. Where did they go? Has anyone condemned you? She says, no one. Then I imagine him dropping the stone. And then the text says, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on and sin no more. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says, Paul says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, still idolaters, Christ died for us. While you are in your sin, while you are worshiping idols this week, Jesus died for you. Why? he loves you. So to the mockers in the room, he loves you. To the ones who are not ready, he loves you. And to the ones who are and are already part of the family, he loves you. They're all inviting you. Will you come and know Jesus? Don't you want to know him? So repent. Trust that Jesus died. He died on the cross for your sins and he's not dead. He's alive, and he's king, and he is worth everything. Trust in God. He has created everything, and he is alive. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word, for Paul and his just brilliance to write thousands of years ago and to read the text today and just to be moved by his apologetics, to be encouraged by his faith, to see people convert and to come to faith in you um, because of your resurrection, because, that, because of you coming to earth, laying down your life for us. I pray for anyone in this room who wants to know you, um, that they would open their heart to you and receive you for the forgiveness of their sins and that they would submit their life to follow you all their days. We love you, Father, and we need you. In Jesus' name.